Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is Nick, a former member of 22SAS, and we're going to discuss his deployment to the Falklands with the regiment in 1982 on Operation Corporate. We will cover the history of the outbreak of the Falklands War, as this was covered extensively in Pod 9 with Jimmy Moran, and on his account of three Paris deployments and the Battle for Mount Longdon. We also covered the Falklands campaign with Brum Richards, on the naval gunfire support provided by one freight battery on that operation. And if you haven't listened to either of them, they're highly recommended, really informative. I learned a lot from them about the Falklands War, which I wasn't aware of. And then finally, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, Nick's choice of book, film and luxury item. But as usual, we'll start off with our guest's backstory and how he ended up serving with the military and then we're two to SAS. So, Nick, your backstory, please. Hi, guys, and thanks very much for the invite to the Unconventional Soldiers podcast. Joined the Army in July of 1974 uh, at 16 in the Junior Parachute Company. Was there for about six months and then went through the Parachute Regiment Depot, completing the Para Depot in about July of 75. Uh, and then I got posted to one para who were in Berlin at that time. Did you have any family history in the army, Nick? My old man, Ken, he was in, in the King's Regiment based out of Liverpool, saw active service in Korea in the 1950s. He was the um, platoon sergeant with the battalion during the Battle of the Hook. And uh, what did he think of you going to Hereford? Was he, he must have been dead chopper when you got in. He obviously would have known about the SAS. I applied at the age of 21 to do selection. I had obviously a good five years in, in one power, but was getting a little bit 
fed up with exercises, etc. And while we had done one operational tour in, in Northern Ireland, I, I needed to move on. I hadn't told my dad, my parents, I was, I was going on selection. So I think in, the, in about the December of 79, I got permission from the signal platoon boss, a guy called Dick Trigger, an outstanding leader. But then in the May of 1980, there was obviously the uh, Iranian embassy siege and B squadron got heavily involved in that and, and retook the embassy down. So I remember sat at home and it's all on, on the TV news and my dad doesn't know anything about really the SES and, 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 we, and we watch it. And even at that point, I told him I'm going on, on selection. And then when I pass it, you know, it's like the, the light bulb clicks and comes on and yeah, you've done it, well done. You passed selection at 22, which, from my understanding, if there is an average age, it's normally sort of mid-20s. Is that quite unusual passing at the age of 22 back then? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, there are guys who, who passed it before and after around about the same age. There was a guy on the selection course with me. He was 21 when he completed it. There was probably about 180 of us started the course. And so you can imagine the course sort of filled up after the Iranian embassy siege. 180 people started, about eight people passed it. So 22, yeah, it is a young age. The average age is 26, 27. So what squadron was you posted to? and What became your speciality? What troop did you go to? Uh, so I got posted to, to, to D Squadron and the air troop of, of that squadron. At 22 SS, there are four squadrons, A, B, D uh, and G, and they're all made of the same composure. So they've all got four troops, an air troop, boat, mountain, and mobility. They're the infiltration skills that will allow personnel to get into the target and in some cases back off the target. In addition to those troop infiltration skills, they've got individual skills, signals, demolition, medics, and linguists. And what was the difference, the main difference, from your perspective, between life in a parachute company and life in an SES squadron? Um, still, I guess, a, a, a young age, and I've, I've passed the course. In one power, being in the signals, communications, between, we had a bit more, I guess, freedom of movement. Uh, we had, a, say, a great boss, Captain Dick Trigger. While we could say and do things, um, say we had a little bit more freedom of movement from the guys in the rifle company, you really were there to just do as you're told and get on and get your job done be- before breakfast. But coming up to, to Hereford and, and passing the course, you would treated from, from really the get-go as an equal. So you could say and, and give an opinion on, on something. Uh, it may not have been the right opinion, but at least you could give it and, and you weren't heavily put down. Moving on to the Falklands then, Nick. Where were you and what were you doing when the regiment got warned off for operations of Falklands? And was there an opportunity to carry any pre-deployment training? The first part, oh sorry, the second part, pre-deployment training, no. The units and the squadron's troops always have the ability to move at little or no or no notice. Probably just come back off a, a major jungle training phase out in Kenya, and we've been working with other units out that way. So on the, the Friday, the I think the second of April, when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands, I don't recall hearing anything about it that Friday. But the the Saturday night, we were in the Paragon Club, and so on that Saturday night, we were warned off to mobilize and RV first thing on that on that Sunday morning. Four of us were immediately tasked to go to one of the Army ordnance bases not too far away and collect all the 
the squadron's war stock of, of ammunition. And then we moved up to RAF Bryce Norton, waiting for the rest of the squadron to arrive. And then come the Monday morning, we're waiting then to get on, get on an aircraft to Ascension Island. We see the Royal Marine party that had been down in the Falklands, sadly all had to surrender. And then they were coming back in. And while we couldn't talk to them, we could see them sort of having a, a, a somewhat debrief and met by one of the uh, Royal Marine senior officers. There was a good documentary on recently about, I think it was Naval Party 8901, yeah, the Rings yeah. you refer to. It was on a lot of documentary coverage, but the Falklands the last couple of months have been pretty poor, but that was one of the better ones. And I didn't realise what a stiff fight they did put up. Yeah. And they were treated quite badly from that documentary, says, on their return. And most of them actually then volunteered and went back out again as part of the, the task force. So sadly, even I don't even think our, our bosses could get a, a chance to go and talk to them. So we went on one of the RAF sort of commercial jets, took us to Ascension Island. We were there for, I can't remember the exact time frame now, but five or six days. And while we're there waiting for permission and orders to join ships and go further south, we went through practices on communications, medical, 81 millimorters, our boat drills, predominantly it's going to be a boat operations down south, runs up the local mountain, and again, just say, waiting for our bosses to get us de- deployed further south. Ascension was, it was quite hot when you were there, wasn't it, Nick, from what I yeah, remember Yeah, oh, definitely hot. I mean, hotter than the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Moran was saying you could see sharks off the boats. And for a jumping off stage to essentially an Arctic warfare environment, it must have been a bit strange. Yeah, I guess there was, I think, for all the units going a few past through Ascension while it was, was steaming hot, then you, it took you know days, weeks to to get down to, into the war zone, and obviously in that period of time, you're in some one theory getting climatized by the cooler, colder, freezing weather. So the journey from the Ascension Island then, and you're going south. How how was you going to get there, and what was your priorities on board the ship? So once permission had been granted, the squadron jumped on about three or four different navy vessels and navy support vessels. If I remember correctly, HMS Bullion Antrim, HMS Plymouth, which at the time was a 21-year-old frigate, a support ship called Fort Austin. So we deployed across those four odd ships. And then we obviously begin to, begin to move south, which, which takes a bit of time. And all we can do is go through planning, preparation, looking up potential options for, for the mission as we sort of head towards South Georgia. I remember the, the older air troop guys, who were parachute square trained, whereas I was, well, I was halo trained. I was only trained on, at the time, on round uh, high altitude parachute systems. So they brought down with them five or six civilian square parachutes. So they did some parachute drops from the Navy helicopters out into the middle of the Ogin. The boat troop guys were doing their boat drills. We would join them to A, assist them in, in what they were doing, but also for us to learn how to get on and off ships into the small boats. Would you get a lot of feed from the UK at the time about what was going on, what the situation was looking like? Probably not from the UK. We were waiting predominantly for HMS Endurance, which was the Navy's Arctic survey ship, a big red and white ship, uh, almost like, I think it's not sure it had ice-breaking capability, but she was coming up from South Georgia, having helped out in the, in the initial landings of a, a Royal Marine Attachment down there to, to defend the place. They'd evaded, obviously captured themselves. So as they came up and joined our small cruise south, I think the mountain troop initially went on board the, the HMS Endurance. 
uh, more planning was, was being conducted for small boat operations um, in order to get ashore initially for reconnaissance purposes and then um, then to follow up with, with uh, raids and, and the recapture of the island. From chats we've had with Bromie and Jimmy Morham about one freight battery and, and three power in the Falklands, it's quite clear that a lot of the clothing and equipment back then was pretty basic. Maybe I've got high expectations here, Nick, but you being in a special forces unit, what was your clothing, kit and weapons like at the time? Our clothing was the same as the rest of the British Army. Perhaps we had some uh, Arctic Norwegian shirts. The mountain troop guys would have perhaps had better uh, footwear and gaiters. Predominantly our, our clothing was the same as everyone else. Uh, there was no constraints in wearing what you wanted. Equipment was probably somewhat slightly better in so much as that your, your belt kit, the equipment that you wear around your waist, we could wear what we wanted, how we wanted, in what order, and put whatever we wanted in the pouches and containers, etc. I do recall wearing a called an SAS waistcoat. It's sort of a, a plastic jerkin type effort. Back's got a, a, a large pouch on. Again, you can put your radios in it, demolition charges, food, and there's two big pouches on, on the front for, for similar items. It wasn't until later on and some weeks in, into the conflict uh, we got issued Gore-Tex jackets that which were lined. The QM back in Hereford had gone to civilian uh, mountain clothing shops, purchased all these Gore-Tex jackets, and, and and got them shipped south, along with a heap load of homemade balaclavas and gloves from the from the wives and girlfriends. So the standard British Army issue of the SLR, the self-loading rifle, seven six two, mixed with M sixteen AR fifteens. But they all had 20-round magazines. Now, these days for an M16 variant, they've all got 30-round magazines. GPMGs, uh, 66s, 81mm mortar. It wasn't until later on that we got to the Falcons proper that we got a, a resupply from our sister unit in, in the US of M16A2s. They came with 30-round magazines, Stinger ground-to-air missiles, and there was an odd construction called an m 202, which was a, a four-barreled 66mm uh, anti-tank weapon system. One of the guys hunted <laughs> it around for a while, but I think it, in the end he just gave it up and, and, le- and left it on, on the ship. Uh, it was never used. Communications-wise, squadron headquarters and regimental headquarters with the CO managed to get themselves deployed as well. So they all, all had satellite communications back to Whitehall in the UK and back to Hereford. Equipment and clothing is always interesting to a soldier, and not so much maybe the army wasn't investing in clothing, but a lot of the textiles and clothing like Gore-Tex just didn't exist back then. It's coming online and round about then, and a lot of the technology didn't really exist. And uh, I think you'll cover a bit later on in the podcast, Nick. But you know, HF comms and uh, one-time pads, which were used in the Second World War, were still in use with your unit. I think, yeah. Definitely. What the one-time pad, that method of coding, um, it's only the patrol signaler and the, the headquarters signals element know what, what's in that pad. And if even to a certain extent, even it was captured, which did happen later on for one of the patrols, the codes are, are easily changed out pretty quickly and you've got to know how to use it. Um, obviously you've got to be trained on, trained on the system. We were still using one-time pads to the 1990s. You know, you... It works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does work. It's just a bit 
my mathematics work because <laughs> <laughs> trying to do it when I'm tired and my fingers were numb oh god Dick can you talk us through the ground campaign from your perspective leading up to the Argentinian surrender we start off uh, obviously in South Georgia by now as in, within the air troop we're on HMS Endurance we know the Navy's warned us off that there's an, an Argentinian submarine in the area so HMS Endurance is, is hugging the coast hiding away uh, around South Georgia, just trying to keep out of the way. One of the Navy's auxiliary ships with the Marine commander on board has had to go further out to sea. HMS Plymouth and, and one of the ships is not too far away, but all spaced out trying to evade being detected by the submarine. While we're hugging the coast, an Argentinian military Boeing aircraft uh, is conducting surveillance over the island, probably under 10,000 feet. We can see him quite clearly. But we, we can't shoot at it. You know, war's not being declared, so we can only watch but not shoot. The main task of reconnaissance fell to uh, our boat troop, as you can imagine, and also the mountain troop. The only way the mountain troop would get ashore is by helicopter, and a decision was made, right or wrongly at the time, to get up onto one of the highest points on South Georgia, the Fatrulli Glacier. Didn't overlook uh, Griffith and the main whaling station, but it was above it. And so the aim was to get up high and then using their mountain skills, come and descend the glacier, uh, get into a point where they could observe the uh, can. Unfortunately, the weather conditions in South Georgia, they'll, they'll change faster than, than a, a British winter in the Brecon Beacons. They suffered a whiteout almost immediately. They tried to hang on as long as they could. The kit was getting blown away. They called for a, a helicopter off the mountain. The helicopters came in. If I get it right now, there was at least two of those helicopters crashed with the guys on board. They, they've scrambled out. Everyone's okay, including the air crew. And then eventually a third um, Wessex helicopter um, comes in. But she's predominant role is looking is an anti-submarine helicopter. So she's got a ton of equipment in the back. There's not enough space to put your cat in, never mind a, a mountain troop and um, crew from, other, from other, other helicopters. They all get in somehow, and that uh, Wessex manages to descend the mountain and, and get back to the ship and get everyone safe again. The boat troop guys, again, obviously trying to infiltrate. For a time, the engines have been playing up. They knew about it, but obviously they attempted to get ashore. I think it was, maybe there was four um, Germany boats. I think at least three of them had an engine failure, and one or two of them getting towed ashore by the one good Germany and its engine. The fourth one got separated, maybe it was on a, a different mission into a different bay, but got separated from everyone else and drifted out to sea. They didn't want to get their, their TACB, the ground-to-air comms up and running to the, uh, the rescue mission, but they didn't want the Argentinians to, to know we, we were in the area. So they continued to drift, trying to get the engine going, just making the best of it as they could. And then um, eventually they saw, I think it's the same Wessex helicopter and, it, and its crew, they picked the guys off Glacier. They saw it in the distance, opened up the radio, a quick burst transmission. Hey, we're over here. Helicopter picks them up. Uh, obviously, they closed the, um, the radio down there. And if they hadn't been seen, they would have been doing Shackleton's route to South Georgia uh, in reverse. <laughs> a few of the accounts of the photos where I've read, uh, these small boat infiltrations were hugely dangerous in themselves from what I understand, Nick, because the engines at the time weren't particularly reliable and uh, 
the same thing happened to a 148 battery patrol. They're trying to do an infill and uh, they get caught up in a kelp bed. And these are massive seaweed beds out there, 30 metres deep, really, really thick. And the kelp managed to break the propeller. And they also ended up adrift for a while as well. So I don't think uh, any time I'd have been going into those boats, it must have been quite a nerve-wracking experience, I'd imagine. Yeah, uh, lucky lucky for me, I wasn't in in one of the, the Germanys at all. We're on endurance Still waiting to, to get ashore at some point, um, depending what our, our task at uh, mission is. And then the Argentinian submarine uh, is seen on the surface coming out of Great Britain, maybe a couple of miles out. So the, the Navy get their, their Wessex helicopters, the WASP helicopters up off the ships armed with their rockets and machine guns. So they go into the attack and um, onto the, the conning tower of the submarine, beating the hell out of it. So the submarine can't now get underwater because um, the conning tower is being shot up. I remember the, the Wasp um, helicopter pilot coming back to H Mission Endurance with a huge big grin on his face and, and shouting at the crewman, you know, you need to rearm me. So more rockets are put on board. He's still got a grin on his face and, and he's heading back out to the submarine. So we're still waiting um, to task the, um, the, the bosses on the Navy side and, and our boss have made it almost, I guess, a, a, the same instantaneous decision. You know, we've got the submarine on the surface. Well, let's keep, they all know we're here. Let's keep this battle going and let's get tr- troops ashore. Unfortunately for, for M Company of the Marines, um, they're too far out to sea, too far away so that they, they can't get into the, into the combat. So the mountain troop and squadron headquarters is airlifted off of their ships, put down a short distance away from, from Gritviken and they start the tab into Gritviken. They've got heli support up, Navy gunfire support if, if they need it. Uh, they've taken at least one Milan post with them. Uh, I did hear a story afterwards that they, looking ahead, they could see uh, some small heads bobbing up and down in, in, the, in the tussock grass. So they threw a, a Milan missile at it, and it wasn't until afterwards, after they passed it, that it was um, found to be a, a bunch of walruses. Very pissed off the survivors. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Us as the, the air troop were still on endurance, uh, still waiting to get deployed. There's a patrol of SBS with us. But sadly, that, that didn't happen because the mountain troop guys, along with the um, squadron headquarters, take Griffith and, uh, without any real fighting. The Argentinians gave up um, put, put very quickly. <clears throat> that night, uh, uh, now we're tasked with HMS Plymouth and HMS uh, Endurance to get into the next major bay and then and the whaling station there called Leith which we know the Argentinian Navy SF guys are, are stationed at. We've done, I guess, risk assessments, in-depth planning. We've looked at the, the likely helicopter landing points and determined that those would have been mined. It was also um, detected. I think, I'm not sure if the information actually came up from one of the boat crew, crews that got ashore on a, on a, on a recce onto Grass Island. So it was determined where the command control post was. So as we sailed into Leith Bay, the Navy broadcast to the Argentinians that they better surrender. If they didn't, then the Navy ships would, would open up. Um, and they targeted this small hillock behind the whaling station, which was uh, had been identified as their command and control point. We were then put ashore that night through the kelp from the Navy small boats us and the, the air troop and the mobility troop. Um, and some SBS guys got into into different fire positions, waited till first light, and then the Argentinians <clears throat> had already agreed to surrender. They came out, 
their leader was a, a guy called Captain Aztez. He surrendered to the SBS captain and the, the mountain troop um, staff sergeant. He was wanted for, for war crimes, I think, by the UN because of his uh, the atrocities he carried out during civil actions in, in, in Argentina. So he was taken on board endurance, uh, kept separate from the rest of his troops. Uh, so eventually they all came on, and I can't remember how they got on board now, but they were all put on board uh, endurance and into the, the forward hold. They were kept in there, endurance and the rest of that small task force is now heading up the Falklands proper and to join the, the carrier group or carrier groups that, that have headed down south with the Marines and, and powers on. The last part then of um, of South Georgia were in heavy seas moving up to up the Falklands, but were down in the mess decks with the SBS guys and sharing a vast amount of captured uh, Argentinian Amstel beer with different weapon systems rolling around the deck. I've just read or listened to an audible, actually, Cedric Delves' book, Across an Angry Sea. Was he your squadron commander, Nick, was he? Yeah, so Cedric Delves was the squadron boss, Major, Major Delves, at, at that time. In that book, he is quite interesting because he brings up that the sort of the brigade headshed didn't really know what to do with the SAS troops when when they turned up. And I think that's a lot to do with the fact that the SAS in the decades previously had been sort of doing those withdrawal from empire wars, you know, in the Dolphar and all, all those types of places. And I get the impression that perhaps the SAS wasn't really working with the, the sort of the Green Army as much, you know, so the planners and the, the people in charge would know what to do with you. Did you get any feeling for that at, at your level at that time that, you know, you just... that people didn't quite know how to deploy you or use you to your best ability? Not at my level. I'll say at the time I was 24 years old, I was only a trooper, not long not long in the squadron. But I do know that um, the SES weren't on the armies all back for, for combat operations. It, it was to one side doing its own thing, as you said, uh, the war in, in Oman and uh, southern Oman in Dofar, uh, stopping the Yemeni communists um, taking over the country. So we weren't in the conventional war footing uh, with the rest of the rest of the, the military, that's obviously changed for the better at post then and, and today. So the bosses were continuously looking at ways to get us involved in the fight. I guess sometimes even even our initial deployment was all done under the radar. We were doing stuff moving ahead of the the main military effort before the military even thinking about it, uh, and then they realised we're there. Um, so we're under the the Navy task force both D squadron and then G squadron uh, had been brought down and it was then determined that G squadron would do all the reconnaissance on, on Falkland with their OPs and someone were out there for 20 or 30 days and that D squadron would remain and be the um, assault raiding squadron, which is great. We were G squadron sat in an OP and we're going from one raid uh, and, and activity to the next. Uh, fantastic. So that leads us on nicely to the Pebble Island raid, which is really takes you back to the, the roots of the SES in the Western Desert with the raids on German airfields with Paddy Blair Main. And uh, I believe during the Second World War, I think the SES destroyed more aircraft than the RAF did. Getting an opportunity to do a raid on Pebble Island, Nick, that must have been quite exciting. So the, the raid started off, or the, the, it, obviously I guess it came out of the blue because there was a a Harrier raid coming back to, to the carrier and um, they reported a radar ping coming from or the vicinity of Pebble Island. 
which lies just to the north of, of West Falkland. So <clears throat> they needed more investigation. The squadron boss, the, the, the CO, looked at the ground, looked at how we could perhaps get, get involved. I'm not sure if they had any aerial photography at the time. A mission was presented to the Navy chain of command, and um, they decided to put uh, reconnaissance onto the island. That task fell to our boat troop. So they were dropped off uh, by helicopter <clears throat> with their clepper canoes, uh, which are, are, are folding German-designed manufactured canoes, uh, dropped off in, in, on West Falkland, and then they tabbed with those uh, canoe systems to the coast, uh, reassembled them, and then canoed across quite a dangerous strait of water, either tide and the, and, the, and the currents coming through there, from what I've learned, can be extremely dangerous. They get ashore onto Pebble Island, do their reconnaissance, and they determine that there's a large number of Bacara and other aircraft set on the airfield. There's a number of Argentinian troops around. That messaging is all they obviously sent back, as you said, Kev, uh, Morse code, OTP, back to the carrier. The squadron's given permission to c- conduct its raid. So more planning, preparation, um, again, within a very, very short period of time, we're, we're launching from the carrier flight deck. And there was a delay in getting off the, the carrier, I think due to heavy seas and, and the winds. That had an impact later on on the raid. But we get airborne in the in the Sea Kings. I can't remember how many Sea Kings took us in now. But they drop us off to a, a small beach cove um, on Pebble Island. We're obviously met by the boat troop boss and a number of his teams. Everyone gets off. We're obviously more than bombed up. With every man's carrying uh, an additional two 81mm mortar rounds. And then we start off as a, a, a squadron snake from the, the heli info point towards the, the airfield at Pebble Island. Point to note here is that the mobility troop had been given the task as the primary demolition team uh, for destroying the air, aircraft up there, and the mountain troop were the secondary demolition team. I think we as 16 troop, the air troop, led the way with squadron headquarters to um, short of, of the airfield and short of the the village uh, at the airfield or close to the airfield. The 81mm mortar team gets set up. We all drop off with a great relief our 81mm mortar bombs. So then it uh, found out that the mobility troop have been misplaced at that particular moment in time. And so now the task for <laughs> airfield demolition has fallen to the mountain troop. So they're happy guys. They've got a definite mission, whereas before they were in reserve. Mobility troop still out there making its way to the um, the, the squadron RV in the mortar position. It's good to see Nick that even even special forces get geographically misplaced. Yeah, sorry, yeah, they weren't lost; <laughs> they were just misplaced. They knew where they were. They knew where they were. <laughs> yeah, so we as the air troop, we set off for the, for the village. We've done our checking of what what's around and where we think the Argentinian forces could be inside the village. Uh, all these villages on, across the Falklands have got large sheep shearing sheds, so it's determined that the um, the troops will, will be in there, but the officers will be billeted in the, in the houses of the islanders. So we begin to set off. We're in an open line formation, moving across a sort of open ground. We get to hedges and fence lines every now and then, but we're bounding forward. The mountain troop, obviously there. They've disappeared with huge big grins on their faces towards the airfield and, and their aircraft demolition task. Oh, so we also had a, a an NG, NGS officer assigned to the squadron for naval gunfire support. 
from HMS Glamorgan. And when the time came for the assault to start, uh, he was putting down a loom over a small mountain that overlooked the, the airfield. That was quite good support from, again, from, from the Navy. I, I don't know, I can't remember which ship was doing the naval gunfire support. So as we, as a troop, tapping into the village, our, our mission is to act as a cutoff for any Argentinians that are suddenly going to come out once they know that um, airfield's under attack. So we're to cut them off, perhaps get into the village, deal with the issue there. But as we're tapping along, we're stopped. The, the squadron boss is told to pause. So we obviously get down, waiting, and then we have to move back. And this is all to do with the delay coming off the carrier in, in the first place. So, so now it's having an impact on the squadron's time on the island. The, the squadron boss is concerned that if we don't get the mission completed within a very, very tight time frame, we won't get the Sea Kings back in and we won't make it back to the carrier. We began to pull back and then we go forward again and then we come back and then we go forward again. So then there's an argument further down the, the troop line or uh, extended line between the, some of the senior guys in the troop and I think it's a troop staff sergeant. So it's a, it's a loud whisper because we're tactically moving forward but this whisper's getting louder and more heated. And then it's uh, followed by a couple of large whacks and groans as it was a small fist fight. Um, <laughs> so basically, the older guys in the troop, uh, as we were, keen to get stuck in, uh, into the village and, and do what we had to go and do. But there's that constraint that we can't move any further forward. There was a small fist fight. Me and my mate looking at each other. He hadn't been on the squad that long either. And again, we're thinking, you know, you know, what's the, we're in the SES, but we're, we're fighting amongst ourselves and not getting stuck into <laughs> into the village. Yeah, so the mountain troop uh, hit the airfield with their 66s, their, their machine guns, rifle fire, demolition charges, and, and they take out 11 aircraft from Bakara ground attack aircraft, I think to a, a Skyvan type of, of aircraft. As they move back, to the squadron RV having completed their task. There was a cratering charge set off by the Argentinians and at least one of the mountain troop guys um, suffered concussion from that charge, but no other <clears throat> main injuries were sustained by, by anyone. Uh, and then we moved back to the, the squadron RV with the 81mm mortars. By then, the mobility troop who were missing in action have now turned up. <clears throat> Um, so there's, the distraction force. Yeah. So we're now into into all round de- defence. Obviously, comms have been sent out to the carrier to get the Sea Kings back in. So while we're waiting there, um, some of the old and bold Dofar campaign guys or, or whatever they were from were, were talking, stood up, talking too loudly as if nothing had really happened. It's dark. I'm being bold, and I, one of the youngest guys in the squad, you know, shout up, you know, get down, keep quiet. It's not over yet. And probably there was a little bit of a moan, but they did as told and kept quiet and got down. If it was in daylight, maybe I wouldn't have gobbed off so much. <laughs> I mean, that raid must have been a massive impact on the Argentinians, on their capabilities, and, and a little bit on their morale as well, to know that someone's came yeah. in and smashed it. Yeah, um, and literally was smashed. Um, I think you say 11, 11 aircraft, aircraft taken out, which is stop that capability of those aircraft hitting the troops in, in San Carlos uh, in, in the later days. There must have been some aircraft still there, or they may have come in from from uh, further in, in West Falkland. 
as the, the beachheads uh, got established. To finish off that particular particular raid, the, the Sea Kings um, come back in and we obviously fly back out to the carrier. I guess almost immediately we go down to the, sh- the ship's galley and line up for a big hearty after post-raid breakfast. Dressing our cam stuff or weapon systems, etc. One of the Navy chefs suddenly shouts out to one of the guys in the, in the squadron lined up and calls him by his first name and says, what are you doing dressing all that kit? Why aren't you back here with the rest of us, you know, chef slop jockeys? And this guy, they didn't, they, <laughs> he, he passed selection maybe two or three years before I had. And he'd left the Royal Navy, become a civilian. Because in, in those days, a Navy guy or a Royal Marine couldn't transfer directly from the senior service down into the army. So they had to get out, become a civilian, and then do the TA, Reserve Army, SAS selection course. They'd pass that, and then they could come on regular selection. So this guy here, he's left the Navy as a chef, gone into combat with us, etc. He's lined up at the at the cookhouse. His mates have recognised him. His face has probably gone that red under the, under the cam room. <laughs> but there, yeah, you've got the original Stephen Seagal uh, within the unit. <laughs> Shortly after that, Nick, you suffered a significant loss with the, when a Sea King went down. Can you just talk a bit about that? In brief, then, we'd moved... Well, the squadron was, was what the Navy called cross-decking from one ship to the next. Moved from the carrier to one of the, the two assault ships, uh, HMS Intrepid. I and most of the air troop and others had been held over some hours before. There were members of three power on board the, the assault ship as well. The last lift of the carrier was with a small element of our squadron headquarters, the squadron sergeant major, uh, our support staff, the mountain troop, a uh, number of the mountain troop guys elements from the G squadron, squadron headquarters and, and one of their troops. So on that airlift over, their seeking, as we know, goes down. It was determined, rightly or wrongly, that a, an albatross had struck the aircraft <clears throat> and it immediately went in, into the drink. It's, it's dark now. I mean, it's pitch black. So the Navy knows it's gone down. We're alerted, I think, as everyone else is on the ship. I get onto the onto deck, intrepid slowly moving towards the potential crash site as is other Navy vessels. Helicopters are up with their searchlights, and we're, we're way out to sea from the Falcons, so the priority now is to look for survivors and, and get them out. I can't remember how many people did survive, uh, five or six, or maybe or maybe a couple of others have got out at the Sea King. They were picked up. I never saw any of those guys come onto the assault ship. Sadly, um, the, the body of the uh, Royal Marine Corporal Love, he was on the raid with us onto, onto Pebble Island, one of the crewmen there, who didn't survive, and his body was brought, brought back on board the, um, the assault ship. So it wasn't until the, the next morning that we you know, uh, could determine the complete loss of guys that went down, uh, went down on the sea thing. One of the guys that got out is a guy called Mark Splash Ashton from the Mountain Troop. He's recently produced a book called Seeking Down, and it describes, uh, it obviously in more detail, the crash of the Sea King getting out of the aircraft before it disappeared completely under the waves. What's probably more remarkable is that while Splash, along with five or six others, got out and were taken to the various um, Navy ships for, for medical care, Splash managed somehow to get himself back into the combat zone. So he got himself off uh, the recovery process, didn't allow himself to get fully in. Uh, if he got to, I think, on one of the Red Cross uh, designated hospital ships. He couldn't, by um, international law, he wouldn't have been allowed to get back into the combat zone. 
but he basically he bluffed his way um, and got himself off the ship onto an assault landing boat, joined one of the other ships, and, and got himself back into the fight. Seeking down uh, by Splash, Mark Ashton is definitely worth a, a read of, of his account of the Falcon's War. And obviously at that point, uh, Nick, things are moving quite fast and uh, you wouldn't have been given much time to think about the impact of that on you and because you're moving on to the San Carlos landings. What did you do there as part of the operation to um, land at San Carlos? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Mountain Troop has lost quite a lot of people, um, experienced people. The squadron up Major Lawrence has gone as well. But as you said, you know, we've, we've still got to get on with our, our jobs, our tasks. Um, the main landings are, are about to happen. I can't remember the exact time frame between the Sea King going down and then us getting ashore, but it must have been a, a day or two. And so there's about five of us approximately uh, are assigned from the air troop to the mountain troop under Captain uh, John Hamilton to take part in um, diversion raids <clears throat> on the outskirts of Darwin and Goose Green. The whole squadron has that mission, but we're split down into the, into the four troops and given four different uh, areas of operations outside Darwin and Goose Green. So we're, we're inserted, maybe there's about, about 10 of us in, in that mixed troop of mountain and air. At that time, there are no other British military on the island apart from the G Squadron observation patrols around Stanley and maybe some SBS um, teams as well. But we're dropped off by, by Sea King. The helicopter lifts off, it's pitch black, it's gone quiet, and I'm thinking, this is it, there's no one else here, it's just us, and we've got to go on and do our mission. We can't get off until it's done. So anyway, we pick ourselves up and move off to one of the, the target farmhouses on, on the outskirts of Darwin. I'm the, the lead scout, I've got my M16, but I'm also carrying a, an MP5 SD, the silent version. Uh, in an effort to take out any sentries that we, we might come across. We've got one set of night vision goggles, and the guy that's carrying that, he gets ahead every now and then and looks ahead. <clears throat> we get to the farmhouse, wrecked it, determined that there's, there's no one there, no civilians, no Argentinian military. The other troops, a similar task, and at the appointed time, uh, we then just open up into the heavens, into the open ground with our weapon systems, machine guns, rifles, Elune, just making as much weapon noise as we can in order to give the impression to the Argentinians as at least a battalion size attack coming, coming their, their way. So those are diversionary noisy attacks that all went down and now we've got a tab back out 
to San Carlos. Into the four troops are obviously moving independently. They head towards the, the squadron RV. Uh, I recall getting into there, and I'm, I'm not sure then if the squadron headquarters under the, the squadron boss come in. But then we um, see a, a Pacara aircraft go past, comes outside of a, of a hill, sort of partly out of sight to us, and is heading up towards um, the beachhead, closely followed by a Stinger missile. The Stinger takes it out, the aircraft crashes, the pilot got out, and initially we thought, you know, that was the, the powers or someone at the beachhead that has taken the, air, the aircraft out. But then the rest of the air troop come in, and one of the guys, there's two guys have been trained up over a couple of hours on the carrier of how to use the Stinger missile, uh, which again has come from um, our sister unit in, in the States. Sadly, the, the guy that um, collected the weapon systems from the States and, and knew how to work them, he sadly died in the, in the sinking that went down. That, that Picard has gone down, the squadron's now all complete, and then it's making its, its troops snake back up towards um, two Paris lines and, and San Carlos. More Pacaras uh, coming overhead. The two guys with the Stingers are launching their, their Stingers at the aircraft. The mobility troop of, of the lead troop uh, in that formation, but for some reason or other, <clears throat> but because the Pacaras are proper aircraft and not jets, the Stingers go nowhere near the aircraft and, and land 50 to 100 metres in front of the mobility troop, who obviously stop and start <laughs> screaming back at the guys to stop firing the Stingers and um, just leave it. They're not having a very good time, that trip, are they? No. <laughs> no, they didn't. It wasn't a lovely one. So we continue tapping up towards um, two powers lines. One of the main concerns for everyone on both sides, maybe not two powers, was <clears throat> that we're coming in from enemy-held country. Uh, while they knew we were out there, and they knew our rough, I guess, line and direction of, of approach, there had to be a, a recognition signal. We were told to take um, the Army rifle cleaning cloth, the uh, four inches by two inches uh, white cloth that you clean your weapon systems with, take some uh, long strips of it and wrap it around your head, and that would be your individual collective recognition signals to, to para that we are friendly guys and we're not Argentinians. Bear in mind what you've done so far, Nick. That must have been one of the more arse-twitching moments so far, approaching a heavily armed parachute battalion with nothing but four by twos recognition. Yeah, no, definitely. It definitely was. Um, but, you know, given their due, uh, they, they had been briefed up. They, they knew to expect us. But as soon as we got into the lines, then we took the ridiculous white bandolas off our, off our heads. <laughs> so for some of the, the squadron guys who been in two para and they recognized some of their mates now so they met up had a brew obviously more troops are coming ashore the marines are uh, three para the navy are moving their ships in oh sorry also on that on that tab out and obviously prior to get to meeting up with two para some argentinian uh, fast jets went past really low as you'd expect we all opened up with our with our weapon systems but i was struggling to get my 66 millimeter anti-tank weapon system off my back <laughs> And, and get it out and, and cocked and, and firing it off. But obviously that jet's moving before I could, you know, <laughs> even partly get it off. But the thought was there. I think that's uh, optimism at its best, Nick. Yeah, yeah would even billing if it happened. <laughs> yeah. So we get back into two powers lines. I guess a tactical pause. I think even the squadron boss wasn't too sure what was going to happen to us at that point, how we're going to, say, get back onto the ship or how we're going to... Um, 
operate then on the, the ground. So there's a couple of scout helicopters buzzing around, dropping troops and ammunition off. Myself and one of the guys, we call in one of the scout helicopters, he lands, we jump on board, uh, recognise the crew because we've been working with them in Kenya previous couple of months and say, take take us to a ship, which they do. They take us to, I think, was, um, an RFA ship called Sir Lancelot. So the next hour or two, the rest of the squadron joined us, and that ship then became the squadron's forward operating base throughout the rest of the, of, of the war. So all our missions were um, planned and launched from, uh, from that ship. So that was the end of um, that part of the campaign. We're now back with, with the task force ashore, per se. So what was the next operation you undertook? So now we've been tasked to move up to, to Mount Kent. It's approximately 40 miles away from the beachhead and can overlook Stanley. The squadron's mission there is to conduct reconnaissance, observe the ground and hold that ground until uh, Marine Commando units can be brought in to, I guess, keep the, keep the momentum, keep the advance going in the overall ground campaign. There was a, a pause, I think, before we were given that task, maybe a week plus. In the meantime, two power, as we know, were tasked to launch into uh, and take down Goose Green. From a, a strategic picture, you've got the, the landings taking place. You've got two power into and, and taking Darwin and Goose Green. So now more effort is going to be made on, on the Argentinians. So we're launched up to, to Mount Kent. Again, Navy Seekings, they launch us from our ship. It's heavy, heavy mist on the ground. We launch a, a head off up to Mount Kent. There is some flat comes up from some Argentinian positions en route to the mountain. Get up to the mountain and we're all dropped off and each troop is assigned to a different position round the, the, the mountain. Uh, we had from our position a view of Stanley, which is lit up. And now, you know, we can see the, the end game. Mount Kent, from my understanding, is quite strategic and it could also overlook all the other mountains that needed to be taken before the advance on Stanley. Is that correct? Yeah, so I think we can see three powers objective at Longdon. We probably can't see wireless switch. We can see Royal Marine objectives. Uh, so again, it's reporting what we can see and see happening on those mountains back to the, the task force. And, and then down to the individual units that are going to be tasked to take out take out those objectives. We're up maybe about four or five nights into the mountain, doing the, the job and the task there, holding ground, doing reconnaissance, looking. And then um, at last light, on, on say this, this fourth night, overlooking our objective, uh, our position down toward Estancia House on the coast, two Argentinian Huey helicopters came into view and were heading basically towards the troop position. The squadron boss and other troops, I think the mountain troop had seen it as well. So the squadron boss tasked us to go and conduct a hasty ambush. Most of us leave the troop position. I think we left a GPMG team up there. We moved down in cover through, through the rocks and the, and the high cliff faces down to the, the mortar position. By that time, the Argentinian Hughes had uh, stopped short of maybe about 100 plus metres of the mountainside and drop off approximately eight of their people. So we're now in a hasty ambush position. And when it's hasty, it is hasty. You're just scrambling to get somewhere where you can see the enemy approaching and be in a position to open up on them. And all that's happened very, very quickly. The guy's enemy are, are dropped off. They're, they're walking towards us. We open up. I can't recall exactly, but I'm pretty sure the 81 millimetre water crew 
Punapaloom, <clears throat> so we're opening up on, on the Argens. They had very good drills. We understood later that they were from an Argentinian SF unit called 601, or was it 602 company. They immediately uh, went into their contact drills, they ditched their Bergens, they started putting fire back uh, and splitting up. So we're putting fire into them and vice versa. One of our guys got, got wounded, a couple of guys got fragged. I'm up with the, the troop boss sort of right and, and forward, putting rounds down. As I said, obviously this round's coming back in, then dig, uh, cutting up the, uh, up the ground. You can't go any lower because you, you're on the rock face already. So the firefight ensures uh, there's a bit of a pause in the, in the fighting. Uh, the Argentinians are not firing back. <clears throat> so the guy with our one set of night vision goggles gets up, comes across to me. I've grabbed uh, one of the wounded guys, um, M203s, which has got the uh, 30 millimeter grenade launcher underneath. And so between me and the MVG guy, we start lobbing 30 mil grenades towards some Argentinians we can see further out, um, getting fire direction orders from, from the MVG guy. They then call off, the firefight's completely over, and that's the end of that firefight. I think if I recall correctly, the one of the Marine commandos have now started to come in by, by helicopter. Obviously, their pilots and, and the guys on board are seeing this huge firefight going off, tracer, loom cracking off left, right, and center. I think some of their troops from the anti-aircraft teams, the blowpipe teams, managed to get out the helicopters before the helicopters have to off and get back to San Carlos. Got a couple of marine blow type team guys up there. Troop have now come back to the, the mortar team's position. And I recall thinking to myself, I've still got two grenades in my pouch. Why the hell didn't I throw them? Why didn't I use them? And I'm cursing myself, you know, in all the, everything else that's going on. <laughs> I, I've forgotten about these two grenades. So a bit disappointed in that effort. We had a couple of wounded, one guy pretty, pretty seriously, and a couple with, with shrapnel wounds. X number of enemy killed or wounded. So we go back up to our, our position and sort of get our heads down for the night with an effort to conduct a clearing patrol in, in the morning. I got up on the mountain with more sort of guns, bullets and, and ammo as a, and I ditched certain key elements right in my sleeping bag. I probably had a, a, a Gore-Tex bivvy <clears throat> bag with me, but I, I ditched my sleeping bag because I wanted space and weight up there with a book for other stuff. I've been freezing my arse off the last four nights or so so the clearance patrol goes out in the morning, can't find any of the Argentinians, they've all scooped during the night, but we, we then bring back in uh, all their ditch burgers. And there's, oh, they also found some bandages, first aid kit, where uh, we've been with some of the guys. We go through the, the burgers and pulling out brand new sleeping bags, M MVGs, really good winter warfare equipment, and say most of it is brand new. So now... I've now I've got an Argentinian uh, sleeping bag, so I'm now a happy man. Surprised nobody tried to pull rank on you and they can take that off you. <laughs> uh, I, kept, I kept it for a good number of years. I've, I've no idea where it is now. But yeah, it was a godsend. I think at that time as well, there was some, perhaps because of the firefight, some Argentinian artillery came in, not enough really to, to, to worry about. Then the, the following night, the rest of that Marine commando came in and some of our guys were tasked to take them up to their positions. I was tasked to guide into our position um, an army artillery FOO and his and his team. And at the same time, maybe it was the next day, commandos came in, uh, 148 batteries were brought up uh, as well. They established themselves and quickly got up to action. 
So we've probably got, again, a small, a small time frame before the helis are coming back in to lift us off back to the, the fog ship. But we take the opportunity to go down to the gun positions and fire a couple of shells off towards the Argentinians. One thing to recall about the Mount Kent operation, a war reporter called Max Haytons. So he came in, yeah. I think, on that first... Yeah, he came in on that first heli, heli lift with, with the Marines while a firefight was going on and got himself off the aircraft. X number of hours later, we're, we're at the mortar position with our, our wounded. He wanders up out the dark uh, with his barber wax jacket on, looking very much the English country gentleman. We don't know who he is, obviously, at all. Starts chatting to us and asks if we've got a spare weapon he could have. And there are weapons there because we've got wounded. There's no way on earth is he all going to give one. So he's been politely told to F off. <laughs> off he wanders into the night and goes off. He liberated Stanley on his own. Yeah, he tried to take credit for liberating Stanley, didn't he? Yeah, first man in or something like that. So what was the next stage after that then, Nick? So we're, we're pulled back to the uh, the forward operating base, operating base on, on the ship. We're not really knowing what to expect and what our, our, our next missions are, but we're expecting to get back, get through the hot shower and wait, and wait to retask. For our patrol, that lasted about an hour. There was no food. There was no hot shower. We were straight into a, a briefing for a reconnaissance observation patrol uh, to get into into West Falkland. Our orders were to look for Argentinian drop zone parties, the communications guys, the the ambulances, the, uh, the medics that would form up on on any drop zone, because uh, information had come in from from various sources that the Argentinians were going to do a parachute infill into West Falkland, which with whatever aircraft they, they could muster, their C-130s, uh, whatever cargo aircraft that had a, a parachute capability. So our job as that four-man patrol was to start this initial phase of looking for that, uh, identifying and looking for the, the DZ parties. So we retasked, got our orders, new comms, re-ammoed, got more food, and then we jump on a sea king and wait to lift off from, from the ship. <clears throat> but really heavy, heavy mist had come down. The crew can't take off in, in those conditions. So after about 45 minutes, uh, the aircraft closes down, and then we're back inside the ship. can get hot food, can get a shower, uh, which obviously all the guys ashore from the Paris and Marines, etc., had no chance of getting. So the next night, <clears throat> the mission goes ahead. We, we launch, and... Um, Get on to, onto West Falkland, tab around into different positions, start reporting back. I'm the patrol signaler, uh, sending the information back out to the, to the squadron headquarters. Maybe we're three or four nights up there and we're now uh, expecting to get, or we're told we're getting pulled back to the carrier, expecting um, a, a Sea King or a Wessex to come and, and pick us up. It does, we jump on board and there's the rest of the troop plus some from guys from, from B Squadron, all armed up with Stingers machine guns. We have no idea what's happening. The heli then takes us as a complete troop with the other guys round to another part of West Falkland, and we, obviously we get off and then we're briefed up that the mission is still on, but now it's definitely expected that there will be an, an Argentinian parachute infill. So the squadron, uh, sorry, the troop mission is to, again, report of any DZ parties forming up but uh, as and when enemy aircraft came overhead, then the stingers, the machine guns, uh, would open up on those aircraft and parachutes coming down. It never happened. Information was probably correct at the time, but the Argentinians never launched um, 
a parachute in for Lincoln West Falcon. Probably fortunate for them, because I think it would have been a bit of a suicide mission. Never mind the reception party you would have provided at DZ. I think, you know, the the air defence systems and the combat air patrols would have taken a heavy toll yeah, too. Yeah, definitely. The Harriers would have been definitely on their tail. So while we're up there, uh, eight odd days, I can't exactly remember the time frame, but being the patrol signaler, um, getting obviously the comms up, it's all Morse code and one-time paddles, as you said, Kev. So it's it's gone really cold. It's heavy snows falling, and we get a, I get a message in that one of our mountain troop patrols have been compromised. Have been overlooking uh, Port Howard, and the patrol boss, which actually the mountain troop boss, Captain John Hamilton, who was um, awarded a military cross posthumously, was killed in action because the OP was discovered by the Argentinian Marines. The guys there, John Hamilton and his, and his Sigler. One of the SES blokes in, in Mountain Troop could have obviously a, a fearsome uh, fight as they were trying to draw out of contact. John Hamilton was so was killed and the signal was captured. Um, so he's got all his codes on him, obviously the, the radio. He's brought back into, into Port Howard, interrogated. They're looking through all his kit and his codes, etc. He was um, an Italian speaker. And um, so... Italian language and Spanish have some similarities, so he, he could pick up some of the stuff that he was uh, was being told about. And one of those was that there was a, a real threat that they would um, get him out and, and back to mainland Argentina. If that had happened, we probably wouldn't have seen him again. But they kept him in Port Howard, out of sight of the, of the villages, under the floorboards in one of the houses. And he stayed there until the, the war was over. And then the, uh, some of the troops came and, and picked him up. So the guy that was captured, while I say why he could speak Italian, he had um, um, Captain Hamilton. They both had Argentinian 9mm pistols on them, which they got from South Georgia, as a number of us had. And mm-hmm. um, so they, he was questioned as to what and where, how did he get this Argentinian Mark pistol? He's from the Seychelles, so he's not the white guy that the rest of us are. And he spins a story out that um, he's been tasked to join the captain as his signaler. He had never met him before, and his only job was to uh, transmit um, the messages out from whatever the captain was telling him. And the pistol, um, the captain had given that to him. He didn't know where it came from. But he, so he was putting out the story that he was the, the subservant to, to the officer and just doing as, as he was told. And that probably story did help in perhaps saving his life and maybe helped him not get his ship back to, to Argentinian mainland. And when we're prepping the pod, Nick, you're saying that the Argentinians provided a write-up that actually helped Captain Hamilton get his MC yeah. for the citation. Is that yeah. correct? And so the, the Argentinian Marines were obviously more than suitably, if that's the right term, impressed by the, the contact drills of, of, of Captain uh, John Hamilton and his and signaler. So they, <clears throat> I don't know how it, it must have come out after the war that said, no, this John, he, he needs a, a, a senior, uh, bravery medal for the, how he, how he fought off, um, the Argentinians for a certain amount of time, uh, and kept them at bay. So he then was awarded the, the, the military cross. He still lies buried at Port Howard, but our only guy down there, well, apart from the, the guys out at sea. So after that, what was it, what did you do next? The next task, after we pulled back to the, the ship again, uh, as a squadron, were then retasked to conduct a clearance operations of, of some ground and diversionary assistance to two powers attack on, onto Wireless Ridge. 
So we're headed into really the east end of, of Wireless Ridge. It gets renamed Beagle Ridge at that point. We fly in, we go in via Three Powers location. They've now come up to Estancia House. I met, I met there a Three Power Color Sergeant who took me through Junior Parachute Company's training seven or eight years previously. Um, so we had a good chat, but then we move up to, to people which proper. Our job is to uh, conduct clearance patrols. We came across one Argentinian observation post, which we did a quick assault on. Uh, that was quickly cleared out. And then a number of days later, or that night, um, we're tasked to conduct the diversion job for, for, for two power. So <clears throat> myself and my upper, we've got the GPMG in the SF sustained fire roll. We've got other SF machine gun teams up there from D and, and G squadron. We've got Milan anti-tank posts up from G squadron as well. So we're up on this ridge, tabbed up, out from the squadron RV. And at the appointed time, the squadron boss says, right, now just select a, a, a target, um, where you think the Argentinians will be and just open up on them. So we can see the ridge in front of us is about a thousand meters of open water. And then Stanley's just behind it. So we open up with the, with the GPMG, um, what we think is a likely target. And then within, within minutes, we've got an Argentinian AAA in the ground attack roll, uh, opening up on us. The ground's getting eaten up by 30 millimeter shells. Then, so we stop firing, obviously get down in the tussock grass. We actually start laughing because it's, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> it is really dangerous. And we're, you can hear these. That's rounds. an understatement. Well, <laughs> you can hear the rounds pinging over our heads. The ground's getting whipped up around us. So that gun stops firing. We immediately get back onto, onto our gun, uh, open up on, on him because we could see where the tracer came from. Then an Argentinian, another Argentinian AAA opens up to our left. We switch fire to that one. The ground starts getting cut up again. And then the next, uh, the first um, AAA opens up again. But that time, the rest of the squadron only armed with the M16s and, and SLRs. They can't get into the fight because the distance is, is too great. So they're more than mad, shouting and telling us to up sticks <laughs> and move the gun 100 metres plus to the left. So my mate, big strong guy, picks up the gun and the tripod complete. I've got all the, the ammunition, belted ammo, cans of ammunition. Uh, the troop boss comes up and gives us a hand. We leg it through the tussock grass 100 odd metres put ourselves back down and start re-engaging triple A's. So it's a fire at one, he fires at us, stop, pause, fire at one, and it goes on like that for, for, te- for 10 or 10 or minutes. The rest of the troop squadron are happy because they're not getting shot up either. The boat troop guys, along with, uh, get, they're getting infilled from more or less the, the coast just below our position across this thousand metres of water by um, the Royal Marine rigid raiding. Uh, squadron in their small fast boats. So they get put ashore on the area that we've been shooting up, but they are immediately seen by the Argentinians who rip up the boats with fire uh, and push the boat troop guys off, off that small beachhead. They manage to get back into the, the Ridge Raider boats and then they, they move out back across that thousand metres of water back to our side. They've taken a couple of wounded at, at that point. In that thousand metres of water and close to our position, was an Argentinian hospital ship, which had remained in darkness, but we could see it put all its lights on. It put its searchlights on, and then it began to illumine the, the small boats as they as they came back to our side. So I immediately wanted to open up on the hospital ship, 
and knock, or knock all its lights out. But the troop boss rightly says, it's a hospital ship. Under the rules of law, no, you can't do it. So we packed up all our kit, the Milan crews, the GPMGs, <clears throat> and then we moved back through tussock grass over some sort of high ground back towards the, the squadron um, RV. Uh, in doing so, we must have then been spotted by Argentinian uh, artillery spotters who then logged five or six artillery shells onto us. But we dropped down into a, a scully, then out of sight, and then moved away off out of the area. Back to Squadron RV. Then the, the next morning, uh, a heli arrives. Uh, it's got the, the, the regiment's CO on board, Mike Rose. So he's landed by um, helicopter. I think he comes in to pick up one of our World Signals scalies, one of the signals guys, and then they head over to, to Stanley and to complete finishing off a successful negotiation with the Ar- Argentinian surrender. It's interesting, Nick, that we started off, one of the points we made at the start was that the impression that we had as a mean Kev and sort of emphasised in Cedric Delves' book that the regular army didn't really know what to do with the SAS, but what you've described there, raids, uh, reconnaissance, fighting patrols, OPs, I mean, that is a sort of the, the bread and butter of the Special Air Service. It all seemed to work out quite well in the end. Is that a fair point? Yeah, Absolutely. While the, the squadron boss, the, the CO, would have struggled at times to um, get the squadron deployed and get the agreements from um, task force headquarters back in the UK and and off the carrier. Yeah, we were constantly um, on the move, like you just said. We we're you know raids onto Pebble Island, observation posts, assaults. We're learning in the, obviously the heavy fighting that um, the powers and Marines engaged into. But as you say, classic. SAS behind the lines operations, constantly on the go, constantly planning, um, uh, and we did have the luxury of going back to a ship every now and then. Moving on to the final part of the podcast, then, how did you recover back to the UK, and what what did you take out of that war from, from a personal perspective? What did you learn from it? The squadron was moved back to the UK fairly quickly when we, we had no more tasking to do down there, so there's no point in us, in us staying. We actually were a couple of weeks, maybe a month late in getting um, on our next task on the anti-terrorist team. Our, our time was, was due for that and we're, we're a month late. So it's essential that we get back to the, to the UK. So the first C-130 that had a long, long-range refueling capability landed at, um, at Stanley Airfield. As a squadron then, with our support element and probably some others, we were put on to onto the 130, and then after, I guess, many refuels, it landed back at Ascension Island, where we, in effect, started off, and then onto a VC-10, one of the commercial-type Royal Air Force uh, troop carriers, back into Bryce Norton, landed at 3 or 4 in the morning. Uh, obviously, no reception parties, no banners flying, welcome home, boys. The custom guys met us, asked us if we've got anything to declare, no, sorry, mate, we don't. Back on the on the uh, on the army buses, back to Hereford, and that was that was it. That was the end of the campaign per se. We were then given a couple of a couple of weeks leave prior to getting onto the onto the anti-terrorist team. But a couple of days after after arriving back, it's spring, and I'm walking into into the town from from the camp, crossing over uh, the old bridge, across the, the river Wye, and I pause. 
and just look at that, the, the blue waters, uh, the blue skies, the greenery, the birds singing, people going about their, their daily business. And, and life's normal. And while I reflected back on where I've just come from and what I've been doing, now to see, you know, life back in the UK and in Britain, it's beautiful. Um, I'm obviously glad to be back, but I can't really reflect too much on, on what, what's happened. There's probably personal lessons learned, and we move on. We get back off leave and onto the anti-terrorist team, and, and we keep moving forward. You'd achieved a lot at 24. You know, you got into the Parachute Regiment, you got into the SAS at the young age of 22, and you'd fought in a war uh, doing your job you know, that you trained for. Was there not an element of what next uh, after that? Uh, just, um, I, just me personally, I would find that a very strange situation because you pretty much achieved probably all that you'd aim for at that stage in your life, or am I, am I off on the wrong track there? No, you're definitely on the right track. Um, and I guess, you know, that's why I came to Hereford, you know, to, to see combat. Um, life in the Paris was, was good, but there wasn't enough going on for me. Not, not that it was anything to do with the, the parachute regiment at the time. It was just the, the, the circumstances. So passing selection, getting into Northern Ireland with them, getting into the, the, the Falklands, been on the anti-terrorist team now for the, the second time. Uh, other missions came up there, um, which are probably still classified. So, a lot, yeah, I've got to stay there. That's where the action is go- going to be in some way, shape or form. We travel the world. We go to some really interesting places. You know, we've got good, really good people uh, within within the unit. We've got good command and control. And we're going from one task, be it an overseas mission to assist a, a foreign nation, uh, to exercises and just waiting for the next operational task to come up. Nick, thanks for that. I mean, as I said before, uh, listening to Jimmy's, listening to Brummies, and I've read a lot of books and I thought I knew a lot about the Falklands campaign, but there's always something new to find out. And from your perspective as well, you, you just don't get the ground up sort of stories that perhaps um, some of the previous authors who were like the senior people and their view of the Falklands uh, gave. We move on to now Desert Island Dits, which, as we know, all our listeners look forward to, especially Colin's <laughs> choices. <laughs> so, Nick, what we have to obviously is your choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, for this episode, what have you chosen? The book choice is um, Penal Company by by Philip Neem. He was the OC of um, D Company Two Power in the Falklands. I've recently read it. It's an in depth of an account from his perspective as a, as a company commander with D Company, who were classified as a, as a penal company only because they were, to a certain extent, pushed out from the rifle companies into D Company because they, they were um, thought was a, a lost cause as such, which was completely untrue. D Company fought more than well under Philip Neen uh, down there in the Falcons. Film, film choice is The Hangover. Um, I, I probably saw it more times than I know what to do with. It just reminded me of young drinking days in, in the powers and early days as an SAS trooper. Um, so luxury, luxury item would be, um, a Swiss army knife or, or, or a Gerber, a Leatherman. Um, obviously you've got the knife on there. Great for survival situations. You've got different blades on it, pliers, etc. So yeah, luxury item choice if I was on a desert island. Can't fault that. 
And Colin, obviously, your choice of book, because as we all know, we all look forward to your books. Oh, I detect a bit of sarcasm there, no, no, Kevin. No, 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 I just no. don't know if I'm quite happy with that, well, mate. I don't <laughs> think you can challenge this one this week. I've referred it to it a few times in the podcast. It's uh, Across an Angry Sea by Lieutenant General Sir Cedric Dells, who was Nick's uh, squadron commander during the Falklands. And he gets the title, really, I think. He's tying it in with the James Elroy Flecker poem, The Golden journey to Samarkand, which includes the famous line, we are the pilgrim's master, we shall always go a little further. Beyond that last blue mountain barbed with snow, across that angry or that glimmering sea. And that is, Nick was telling me a while back that that's the uh, the official sort of poem for the SES. Yeah. Nick, is that correct? Yeah, it, it's, it's all on the memorial stones. Yeah, and it's obviously recited time and time again. Yeah, great poem and, and emphasises the, the breed of, of an SES soldier. Kev alluded to it already that uh, Cedric Dells gives a good operational picture in this book about the troubles they had getting tasks initially uh, and some, some of the conflicts of personalities. And he also describes the operations on the ground as well. So it's uh, it's a really good book to read if you want the overall sort of bigger picture of how the SES conducted operations in the Falklands. It's highly recommended. Nick, I've just got a quick question for you about books. I remember I first met you about 30 years ago now. And I remember it was sort of post-Gulf War and uh, the Andy McNabb books were coming out and all the rest of it. And I remember back then, uh, I was talking to yourself and a couple of your colleagues, and you're quite sceptical about these sort of books. What do you make of sort of the burgeoning celebrityism behind the SES with the who dares wins on the telly and all that sort of thing? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I've never watched any of the programmes, and... Most of my colleagues won't do. There's no need to. We obviously know what we've done and how, how we've done it. And great, it's, it's, it's TV entertainment. Probably the most of the guys that are on it are, are the celebrities. Apart from one guy, they have no real experience, depth of experience over a, a long period of time of which to draw on. So we, we don't. We might take the piss out of them, but that's probably about it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your book then, Kev? Well, this, this week, or this episode, it's not a book, it's a podcast, as I've moved into the 21st century. Apparently, I'm not some We're all the there. Stein that everyone thinks I am. And it's a podcast that was done by the BBC. It's a nine-part podcast about J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI. And what a lot of people don't realise is he's the head of the FBI for over 37 years. And I've read his book, and I listened to the podcast. It picks out some of the key elements. And what comes across is... At one stage, he was probably one of the most powerful men in America. He had naughty stories or dirt on every single politician, including presidents of the time. He had so much more influence than people realized, and he was able to shape uh, the politics. And people were frightened of him. He was so powerful. They couldn't sack him. He had the photographs in the drawer. He had the tape machines. And the agency seemed to spend an enormous amount of time internally um, investigating politicians and other people of influence. If you think about the Stasi, it was very much that sort of some of the same model without, without obviously all the violence that went with it. But it was a, it's a really interesting um, background into a, a guy that who had his own closet in his own cupboard as well. He had he had a number of floors. Was able like to about a soft silk ladies' underwear. But he was able to influence and manipulate so many powerful people in America and influence American um, political direction. That's it. Thanks, Kev. And that's it for another episode. And 
Thanks, Nick, for coming on the podcast, mate. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me about cheese and chives, but that can wait for another podcast. <laughs> Larry will be listening into this. That's a, yeah, I've already given feedback about that. <laughs> uh, and for the listeners, this, this is a sort of a special code word going back and forth between Nick and one of his colleagues. <laughs> so uh, thanks also to the listener for your continued support and suggestions. Uh, please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from, especially again Spotify as well. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.